Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. This week's impeachment hearings overshadow a new report detailing lying, cheating, and cover-ups by the FBI. We speak to CIA torture whistleblower John Kiriakou. Donald Trump is a terrible president. He's a bigot. He's a racist. He's bad for the country. But the CIA and the FBI are criminal organizations. And they've been caught committing crimes, and now they're trying to wiggle their way out of it with the help of the mainstream media. And as the protectors of the Venezuela embassy head to court, false charges are dropped against journalist Max Blumenthal in a case related to that illegal siege here in D.C. this year. Our goal was to obstruct the recolonization of Latin America. Venezuela is at the center, it is really sort of the economic and political hub of ALBA, of an alternative to the OAS, uh, which is the U.S.'s cat's paw in Latin America. D.C. residents press their case to purchase public housing. We have Gerald Horn in the house and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, 188 Democrats joined with Republicans to pass a new National Defense Authorization Bill this week, tolling $738 billion. Representative Rokana of California is one of four dozen lawmakers who voted against the act, which also scuttles many bipartisan efforts to end this country's endless wars. Kana spoke on the floor of the House. I rise in strong opposition to this defense authorization. There are many things that you can call the bill, but it's Orwellian to call it progressive. Let's speak in facts. When President Obama left, the defense budget was $618 billion. This defense budget is $120 billion more than what President Obama left us with. That could fund free public college for every American. It could fund access to high-speed, affordable Internet for every American. But it's worse. The bipartisan provision to stop the war in Yemen, stripped by the White House. The bipartisan amendment to stop the war in Iran, stripped by the White House. The bipartisan provision to repeal the 2002, the George W. Bush authorization for the war in Iraq, which is sending our troops overseas, stripped by the White House. At some time, we can't just rhetorically give standing ovations when the president says we're going to end endless wars and continue to vote to fund them. It wasn't just President George W. Bush who committed the biggest blunder of foreign policy in the 21st century by sending us to Iraq. It was the abdication of this body with many members of Congress who voted right with him. My question is, when are we going to listen to the American people? When are we going to do our Article I duty and stop funding these endless wars and start funding our domestic priorities? The defense bill also includes funding for Trump's so-called Space Force. An event featuring Luis Camacho, leader of the U.S.-backed military coup in Bolivia, was disrupted by Code Pink founder Medea Benjamin and other protesters on Thursday. As Camacho began speaking at the program hosted by the Inter-American Dialogue, Protesters climbed onto the stage while chanting and carrying signs. Lie to everybody in Bolivia. 
Co-Pink said in a statement that they are holding Camacho and the self-appointed interim president Janine Añez accountable for cruel repression of anti-coup peaceful protesters and massacres of indigenous people at Cochabamba and Sencada. Anti-imperialist protesters who occupied the Venezuelan embassy earlier this year at the invitation of the Venezuelan government are in a hearing today, December 13th, in advance of the trial which begins in, which is scheduled to begin in two months. The protectors, Kevin Zeese, Dr. Margaret Flowers, David Paul, and Adrian Pine, were forcibly removed from the embassy in Northwest D.C. on May 16th and arrested after protecting it from a right-wing coup for 37 days. They were charged with interfering with federal protective services and each face up to a year in jail and a $100,000 fine. Defending their advocacy of Palestinian rights, Jewish Voice for Peace issued a statement Thursday denouncing Trump's executive order equating criticism of the apartheid state of Israel with anti-Semitism. The order targets the successful boycott divestment sanctions movement on college campuses and threatens colleges with loss of federal funding if BDS activities are a part of campus life. Tali Ben-Daniel, research and education manager at Jewish Voice for Peace, said, quote, this executive order won't protect Jewish students against Nazis or Nazi recruitment. It won't prevent campuses from scheduling important events on Jewish holidays. And it won't protect Jewish religious spaces. But it will target the incredible student movement for Palestinian rights, which is principled and diverse and has always included a lot of Jewish students, end quote. In D.C., residents of public housing are stepping up their campaign to purchase their homes. Lydia Curtis reports. On Monday, December 9th, about 40 public housing residents and activists rallied in front of the District of Columbia Housing Authority to pressure Tyrone Garrett, its director, and the Housing Authority Board to respond to their list of demands, which includes a response to their TOPA tenant opportunity to purchase request by December 31st. Residents from Garfield Senior Public Housing, Lincoln Heights, Kenilworth, and other communities braved the cold and a driving rain to bring their message to government officials. Housing is a human right. That is why we have to fight. Housing is a human right. That is why we have to fight. Activist Sequinley Gray, granddaughter of the late housing activist Kimmy Gray, who successfully garnered power and resources for public housing residents in Kenilworth in the 90s, expresses her frustration and offers solutions. I uh, was born and raised in Kenilworth Parkside Public Housing, and I'm here today supporting the um, DCHA rally because residents have been living in really messed up conditions for as long as I can remember. So I'm here to support residents of public housing because I am a product of public housing. And I grew up in a community, public housing, um, that was that had a lot of economic development. We had a lot of programs for the children. And we barely had police presence, believe it or not, because we built relationships with the police and our community, where we just had a say-so of what we wanted in our communities. Today, it's just we're over police. We're surveillance all the time. 
Um, I did not experience that as a young kid coming up in public housing because there was a movement, right? There was a movement to take back our housing and to manage our own properties because D.C. Housing Authority had done a really bad job at doing that. Like now, Kenilworth Parkside um, had a three-phase redevelopment where community members actually worked and developed in their own community. Um, so what happened was they built in place. Residents were not displaced. Um, if they wanted to move to other properties, they would do that. But housing was responsible for keeping track of all residents, um, sending out a um, newsletter to make sure that residents knew when the project was happening, when they could come back. Um, so, yeah, folks built their built in place. Nobody was displaced. Everybody stayed on the property if they wanted to. Um, and also, if they wanted to help rebuild their community, they also had the opportunity as well. Public housing residents, supported by Can I Live, Bread for the City, and other coalitions, are calling for a citywide rent strike on January 1st, 2020, if their TOPA request is not granted. Some residents have started the escrow process and have been threatened with eviction. Longtime organizer Karen Settles wants this to stop. This is Lydia Curtis from Washington, D.C. Housing organizers told on the ground that under federal law, public housing residents in D.C. have the right to purchase their units, but that those rights are being ignored on the federal and local level. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, historian and author Gerald Horn on the UK elections and more. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for more international news, I'm joined again by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I wanted to start with the UK elections. It's not exactly what the progressive community hoped for in terms of the results. Well, according to press reports, it's a real setback. The Labour Party, the left alternative, in Great Britain, led by Jeremy Corbyn, apparently has suffered a smashing defeat. I'm afraid to say that Mr. Corbyn personally was demonized because of his pro-Palestinian position. He was accused 
of anti-Semitism. And I think we in the United States should take note, since the 45th U.S. president has just issued an executive order applying to U.S. campuses, which fundamentally tries to suggest that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement targeting Israel is a kind of anti-Semitism. This is from a man who, you may recall, said that there were very fine people demonstrating in Charlottesville, Virginia, about two years ago, even though they were chanting, Jews will not replace us. This is a reflection of the fact that Britain and the United States do tend to be in sync, and Boris Johnson, the apparent winner and returning for another term as prime minister, like the 45th U.S. president, is rather economical with the truth, as they say. Uh, he's a sexist and a racist, like the 45th U.S. president. And I think listeners might want to ask themselves how and why it is that both London and Washington are stuck with such disastrous leaders. And I think in part it's a reflection of the preceding historical epic. What I mean is that both London and Washington were at the tip of the spear during the Cold War period, and both found it necessary to smash their respective labor movements, uh, which has weakened the ideological acumen of the working class. Uh, for example, Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s and the late 1970s uh, smashed the miners' union, which was on strike. Uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the President of the United States during that same period, was catapulted into prominence early in his career as a man who helped to destabilize the militant left-wing unions in Hollywood. But I'm afraid to say that this is not a victory for Great Britain as a whole. Uh, Britain, because of its withdrawing from the European Union, which is certainly on tap, is destined to become a kind of appendage, a vassal state of the United States of America. It will be hammered in trade talks with Washington. Uh, British people should be expecting to consume quite a bit of chlorinated chicken. And it will also force the European Union to arm further, I'm afraid to say, because Britain is the major military presence within the European Union. President Macron of France has already suggested that the European Union needs to bulk up its military arm, and Britain leaving the European Union will give impetus to that proposal. I think that this uh, British uh, exit from the European Union and becoming a vassal state of the United States of America will also serve to put pressure on the neighbors of the United States, particularly Jamaica, Barbados, etc., former British colonies. I think that they should consider, through CARICOM, the Caribbean community, moving closer to both Cuba and Venezuela as an alternative. And then... This uh, European Union exit by Britain will probably lead to a breakup of Great Britain itself. Uh, Scotland is primed to have another referendum to withdraw from the UK. Uh, you may recall that before the rise of the British Empire, uh, Scotland and England were at each other's throats. And I'm afraid to say that this may be what's in store next. Well, I guess I'm sort of surprised that Corbyn's effort to raise the specter of some diminishment of their national health service didn't spur more support. 
uh, he had uncovered a scandal, really, that would seem to indicate that Boris Johnson put the National Health Service on the table as possibly being up for sale to United States corporations if Brexit went through. So I'm surprised that the combination of the National Health Service issue, plus the very robust Extinction Rebellion movement didn't bolster labor more. Well, recall that during the campaign, Boris Johnson, with his typical demagogy, promised and pledged to spend even more on the national health care system. In a sense, this is a replay of Brexit in 2016, when he put forward this false claim that if Britain withdrew from the European Union, there'd be more money for the national health care system. That has not proved to be the case. But once again, this does not speak well for those voters who were seduced and taken in by Mr. Johnson's demagogy. So here in D.C., the big international news was the this release of the what we call Afghanistan papers by the Washington Post, this big expose revealing the Pentagon basically lying about the Afghanistan war for these past 18 years. In some senses, it reminds me of the Pentagon Papers. You might recall how Daniel Ellsberg, who fortunately is still in the land of the living some decades ago, was able to take from a safe hiding place this Pentagon Papers project, which revealed how the United States was lying about the war in Vietnam for years. And now we learn that the United States has been lying about the war in Afghanistan for years. Uh, The critique I would make of the Washington Post series, which I think is certainly worth reading, is that the lies with regard to Afghanistan in many ways begins before 2001, when you have the direct U.S. military intervention after the bombing of the Pentagon and the World Trade Center in September 2011. Uh, That is to say, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan began in the late 1970s with the United States allying with religious zealots to squash the left-leaning People's Democratic Party, which was then ruling in Kabul, Afghanistan, and had been assisted by the then-Soviet Union. Under President Jimmy Carter, you saw the weakening of the PDP and eventually the coming to power of the Taliban, which then was forced out of power, at least temporarily, uh, in the fall of 2011. But when I think of these hundreds of billions, perhaps a trillion, perhaps two trillion dollars spent on this disastrous, catastrophic war, the only thing I can think of are the hospitals and the schools and the daycare centers that could have been built, not only in Afghanistan, but here in the United States of America, but instead went to armaments, went to warfare, went to bloodshed. You know, in this very aggressive neoliberal phase that we're in, where the United States seems to be involved in regime change wars and these types of interventionist wars around the world, I can't help but uh, try to bring us up to date on Bolivia. Uh, I understand that President Evo Morales has taken asylum in Argentina now. Well, he's trying to get closer to home. And that's also a reflection of the fact that you just had uh, sworn in a new president of Argentina, 
who is more to the left than his predecessor, uh, President Macri, and the return to power as vice president of Christina de Kirchner. And certainly that is a ray of good news, a ray of sunshine uh, with regard to South America, which has been reeling not only from the coming to power of the uh, fascist Bolsonaro in Brazil, but also the dislodging, as you just suggested, of Evo Morales in Bolivia. Well, the progressive media or the alternative media is really looking at the role of Bolivia as a major supplier, uh, having the largest world supply of lithium, and the fact that the, and how some of these coup leaders in Bolivia seem to be angling and having their eye on that uh, very early in this process. And there's supposed to be new elections, but we'll have to see if this actually materializes or whether these uh, basically neo-fascist leaders, one of which was actually in D.C. on Thursday and uh, Code Pink disrupted that that presentation he was giving, if we actually see these elections, fair elections actually happen. And speaking of the economic aspects of international affairs, I know that you keep a close watch on the trade wars between the United States and China. And what what's new on that front? Well, apparently there is an agreement with regard to the phase one segment of a trade agreement between the United States and China, but don't pop the cork from your champagne bottles if you're an investor, because we've heard that news before. What's also striking is that China has been striking back at the United States of America. They just announced that as of 2022, China state-owned corporations and state entities will be buying no U.S. computer hardware or software, uh, which will be not only a blow to Dell and Microsoft, but also portends China building up its own hardware and software companies as competitors to Dell and Microsoft. China also is in the news, it seems to me, with regard to how Chevron has been losing buckets of cash lately, particularly with regard to natural gas. It had been expected that U.S. natural gas producers would be selling this commodity to China, but with the conflict, that's not happening. And in the meantime, China has inked a multi-billion dollar deal to get natural gas from Russia. Likewise, uh, U.S. farmers are singing the blues because they're not selling as many soybeans to China. And as a result, Brazil has swooped in and has stolen that market. So in any case, even if this phase one trade agreement tends to hold, and these press reports uh, tend to be accurate, the fact of the matter is, is that all that means is that China will be buying more stuff where the United States goal has been to go beyond that and force China to change the way it does business to reduce the role of the state in the economy. And that does not seem to be on tap. Okay, well, I'm sure you'll keep a watch on those economic developments and we'll keep talking to you about them. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, as always, for joining me, Gerald. Thank you. It's still her color, freedom. It's still her color, freedom. It's still her color.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Max Blumenthal, editor of the news site The Gray Zone, which On the Ground has featured in the past, was arrested on the morning of October 25th on a fabricated charge related to this year's siege of the Venezuelan embassy here in D.C. A team of D.C. police officers appeared at Blumenthal's home just after 9 a.m. demanding entry and threatening to break his door down. A number of officers had taken positions on each side of the home as though they were prepared for a SWAT-style raid. Blumenthal was hauled onto a police van and ultimately taken to D.C. Central Jail, where he was held for almost two days in various cells and cages. He said he was shackled by his hands and ankles for over five hours in one such cage along with other inmates. His request for a phone call was denied by the D.C. police and corrections officers, effectively denying him access to the outside world. This week, the charges were dropped, but not before Blumenthal was defamed on corporate and social media. We caught up with him Thursday night at a fundraiser for the Embassy Four. One of the things you mentioned is that you feel like there should be some accountability because this was obviously false charges. So what would you like to see happen now? Well, yeah, these were false charges and it could be done to you. It could be, be done to anyone, the activist community, any journalist who is, you know, considered a threat. And we saw that with Julian Assange. The charges were cooked up against him of sexual abuse that have all been dropped and it's been used to justify his legal persecution where he's now facing 150 years in prison for jumping bail. Obviously he can't make bail if he's in jail or if he's in the embassy on this fake charge. So I'm not comparing myself to him except in the way that these legal tricks are deployed. These accusations were made against Medea Benjamin for assaulting Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Complete lie and cops showed up at her house. It's the same element in the U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition who see us as a political threat, who hate us, that have been using these charges and using local law enforcement as a weapon against us. So we have to do something to deter that, demonstrate deterring capacity so people think twice before they lie about us. So um, in what you would, I guess, call an exploratory phase right now about what can be done legally, to prevent this from happening again and you will be the first to know when I take that action. Okay. And then earlier you were mentioning that the main issue is to do something to prevent the kind of U.S. march of imperialism in South America and all these actions that are being taken against sovereign countries. So, you know, because a lot of people might think that we were out there just for the embassy. Right. I mean, the embassy, what we did around the embassy was a tactic. And it wasn't to save the embassy. That wasn't our goal. Our goal was to obstruct the recolonization of Latin America. Venezuela is at the center, is really sort of the economic and political hub of ALBA, of an alternative to the OAS, uh, which is the U.S.'s cat's paw in Latin America. Uh, it was really the engine of 
you know, the revitalization of the left in Latin America. Now, with the right on the march, the U.S. wants Venezuela to be the ultimate domino to fall, and then Cuba will fall, and Nicaragua will fall. That's the way they see it. So we're doing whatever we can here in the heart of the empire to obstruct that. And we, what we did was actually defend international law. We don't have to violate the law. We don't have to do you know, black block activities uh, and break things. We, people were there as guests of the legitimate government. And so I think what will be demonstrated will be another blow to the empire in the trial of the embassy four. The four protectors who stayed in the embassy were arrested in the end and now are being facing a year in prison, which is that the U.S. is actually dealing with the uh, le legitimate government, the Maduro administration. It's given up on Guaido, and therefore they had every right to be there. I think that will come out in this trial. So we're also using our own persecution and our own trial as a form of kind of moral, political, and legal jujitsu to expose the empire. Okay. Okay, thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, this week, the Department of Justice Inspector General released a report on the FBI spying on the Trump campaign in 2016. And while the report reveals the FBI lying, concealing, and in other ways abusing its power, that abuse and danger to Americans and to the Constitution may have been overshadowed by the articles of impeachment against Trump announced by the House of Representatives. Here to help us understand the significance of what the report says and does not say, and its relationship to the origins of the debunked Russiagate investigation is John Kiriakou, former CIA analyst who was imprisoned for blowing the whistle on the CIA's use of torture after the attacks of September 11, 2001. He is now an author, journalist, and co-host of Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to On the Ground, John. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, I first wanted to speak to you after there was a leak from this report before its formal release. And that leaked to, I think, the Washington Post and CNN described a quote unquote low level lawyer, I think at the FBI, falsifying information in order to get a warrant to spy on a volunteer, I think, for the Trump campaign. So this information was treated as a somewhat of a as a non-story, but I don't think it was a non-story to you. And tell us what that legal process meant to you. Yeah, you know, this is this is really a very important thing, not just for me personally, but I think in this whole greater case, what we have here is an FBI attorney falsifying a federal record. That's a felony. But I'd like to preface this by saying something about this attorney. When news first leaked out about this to the Washington Post, this is a couple of weeks ago, the Post, followed by the New York Times, downplayed this, saying that this was a a junior attorney and that the document that was falsified uh, did not change the ultimate conclusion. Well, first of all, none of that's true. When an attorney joins a federal agency, bureau, or department, just by dint of the LLB after the attorney's name, he or she joins at the GS-11 rank. Now, that's on your very first day. On your very first day, you are a mid-level employee. You're not a junior employee. This employee, this attorney, had been around for a while. And so I would call that a senior-level attorney in the Justice Department, not a junior level attorney. That was disingenuous and it was intellectually dishonest. Secondly, they said, well, what the attorney changed in the document didn't change the outcome of the investigation. That's irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant here is this attorney committed a federal felony by changing that document. Now, you can charge that felony in several different ways. Falsifying a federal document is number one making a false statement, number two. Number three would be obstruction of justice. Number four would be perjury, because we know that the attorney was called before superiors and questioned about having falsified this document. So we're talking about three or four different felonies that this attorney can be charged with. So the media downplaying it should be ignored by all of us as irrelevant. Now, I think the important thing here is the tone of the Inspector General's report. And don't forget that the Horowitz report is not the only report that's coming out. We have a parallel report coming out by U.S. Attorney John Durham soon. And when I say soon, I mean in the next several weeks. So, again, the Post and the Times and MSNBC and CNN have told us, Well, there was some malfeasance, but uh, the origin of the Russia investigation was such that it was done properly. That's not what Horowitz said. That is not what the attorney general said. What people are either forgetting or ignoring is that this whole thing began with a meeting convened by John Brennan, who was the CIA director in the second half of the Obama administration, reporting to the FBI and the Justice Department that he had intelligence from the Estonian Intelligence Service saying that the Russian government had infiltrated the Trump campaign. Brennan knew that that information was bogus, but the information led to the commissioning of the Steele dossier, and it was all downhill from there. So we're at a point really where 
we can't believe and we shouldn't believe what the FBI is telling us. They're lying. So since that leak, of course, the full report has been released. And I guess it wouldn't be surprising if most of the public is still dismissing the story with the major Democratic Party aligned news outlets like CNN and MSNBC highlighting the report summary that there was no political bias in the FBI's initiation of the investigation and of course Fox News and you know I never want to agree with Fox News <laughs> but this you know strange bit. yeah it you know I have to as a journalist I have to just deal with the facts but Fox News is the media outlet pointing out these abuses and so-called errors by the FBI and we just last week talked about Fred Hampton we talked about the you know their participation in the assassination of and so we know about COINTELPRO. We know about the real history of the FBI. So for us to just jump on this side where we're going to defend the FBI, it doesn't make sense here on, on this show. But anyway, so forgetting either kind of spin, you know, what does the full report tell you about what the FBI did, you know, now that we've had the report? And then I, I think there's been some testimony before Congress and how this relates to what would go on to be the full-blown Russiagate investigation. Yeah. You know what? Let me preface that answer with a reminder that, and, and this is how crazy Washington has become. You don't have to love Donald Trump to hate the FBI. You don't have to agree with Donald Trump to hate the CIA. You can have a scenario where there is just simply no good guy. And this is one of those situations where, yeah, Donald Trump is a terrible president. He's a bigot. He's a racist. He's bad for the country. But the CIA and the FBI are criminal organizations, and they've been caught committing crimes, and now they're trying to wiggle their way out of it with the help of the mainstream media. So, you know what? Kudos to you for having a show like this where we can actually talk about these issues that are not being discussed in the mainstream media. To answer the question, yes, this is something that I would urge all Americans, certainly all of your listeners, to read. If you don't want to read the whole 470 pages of the Horowitz report, there is a dozen and a half page executive summary that pretty well lays it out. But pay careful attention to the language. Don't let these guys spin you. Don't let them try to force their analysis on you before you've read the report and come to your own conclusions. That's something that we all have to do. Because everybody in this situation has a vested interest, and their vested interest is to convince us of their position. We can't let them do that. So when I consider, and I haven't had a chance to read the whole report, but, you know, just through this particular report, the whole issue of Russiagate, Ukraine Gate, all these different things that are spinning around us, I always think about what if the same low standard applied to a future presidential campaign or a future yeah. president, you know? Very easily, someone could change a document or lie and right. investigate Bernie Sanders or concoct a story because he visited the Soviet Union that he's a he's a, a Russia asset. Or is every presidential phone call with a foreign leader going to be subject to impeachment? You know, like with the Ukraine gate. So we're, we're just really in a, a really... I don't know. I don't want it seems to be uncharted territory in terms of how uh, the spying agencies are able to have been able to create both of these scandals, really. And like you mentioned, the upcoming 
report by Durham. Yes. Right. Uh, that will perhaps get to more of it. But I even just wonder in this kind of polarized environment, whether facts will be allowed to stand on their own or not. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, and this is something that we should all be concerned about. Imagine if we learned after the fact that the FBI had infiltrated the Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. Or the Tulsi Gabbard campaign or anybody, the Barack Obama campaign, uh, just because someone had said, oh, you know what? I think that someone in that campaign is working for the Russians. One of the things that's kind of funny to me is, uh, you know, early on when Russiagate didn't even have the name Russiagate, it was very early in the process. Donald Trump made a, a crack about having his phones tapped and the media mocked him. Well, his lingo was wrong. We don't tap phones anymore. That's a vernacular from the 1950s or 60s or maybe the early 70s. You don't need to put a physical tap on phones anymore. But he was correct in that his communications were being intercepted electronically. So then the question is one of semantics. Does that mean that the FBI was spying on the Trump campaign? The FBI says no. But the answer is, of course, the FBI was spying on the Trump campaign. And now they've been forced to come clean after three years. Why couldn't they just have been honest from the beginning? Why did they lie to the FISA court to have the FISA warrant on Carter Page renewed twice when they knew that the basis for the warrant was false? They knew it. They knew that the Steele dossier was made up. It was fiction. And it had originally been commissioned as opposition research first by the Ted Cruz campaign, and then by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Why did they lie to the FISA court? They lied at every step of the way just to keep this thing going, and it was a paper tiger. There was nothing behind it. Wow. So just a couple more things I want to ask you, and one is about the FISA court. The FISA court has been in the news before, and people have commented on how it shouldn't even really be called a court, maybe a kangaroo court, and how you don't really have a choice or representation if you are somehow brought into that court. Your name is. And these spy agencies are able to get a warrant to surveil you. No one gets representation in the FISA court. Yeah, and you know what? I don't even think we should call it a court because... A court implies that you can go there with representation and defend yourself. Right. But in the FISA court, you don't even have any idea that there's a proceeding against you. It's all in secret. And indeed, it's actually classified at the top secret level. So here there are government attorneys from the CIA and NSA and FBI arguing against you in camera, in secret, to a, a government-appointed judge, and you don't have any idea that you're being looked at for right. potentially grave crimes. Remember, espionage, sedition, treason, these are death penalty crimes. And you don't even realize that you're being investigated. It seems like some lesson, like like from like junior high school or something, I remember something being called the Star Chamber. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly what it is. But, you know, uh, you're not there, you know, and... Uh, you know, and you can, they can come out of court and you can be in grave danger and not know it. So the last thing I want to ask you is uh, really kind of switching the subject a little bit, but not totally. 
And I wondered if you'd seen the new movie, The Report. I have not yet seen it, but I was the script consultant for it. Oh, okay. Because... It was written and directed by Scott Z. Burns, who's a, a noted Academy Award-nominated writer and progressive figure in Hollywood. And so he began writing it as a spec script in, in 2015 and uh, brought me on very, very early into the process. This movie is dealing with CIA torture, which John Kiriakou knows a lot about. And it talks about the Congress's attempt to investigate what the CIA was doing. And I think it was Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, that whole process she went through in terms of hiring investigators and everything they went through and everything they discovered that the CIA was doing illegally in terms of torturing people. And some people even died in these black sites yes. after yes. 9-11. More so, people than Americans realize. Right. So yes. um, is there anything else that you want to add that I didn't uh, ask you about in terms of this process? Because it will be going on. It's even being somehow linked to the impeachment. Only in tangential ways, you know, I when I hear yeah. uh, Nancy Pelosi speak, when I hear Jerry Nadler speak, I hear them making a reference to Russiagate as if it was real. As if it, it know, you know, right? as it's if, like, yeah. It's like everybody just pretends that the Mueller report never happened. Right. You turn on Morning Joe on MSNBC in the morning and they say the word Russia every every five or ten seconds. Mm -hmm. That everything is Russia, 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 Russia. My God, people, it's not Russia. Get over it. Let's right. look at the FBI as the enemy here. They're yeah. the ones that have infiltrated, you know, every every peace group and apparently the Trump campaign. Okay, well, with that, we will just watch as the not only the impeachment process continues, but also watch for the upcoming uh, Durham report, which will provide even more information that we need to really make uh, make decisions and to be informed as Americans. <laughs> I've been speaking Amen. with John Kiriakou, former CIA analyst who was in prison for blowing the whistle on the CIA's use of torture after the attacks of September 11, 2001. He is now an author, journalist, and co-host of Loud and Clear on Sputnik Radio. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks again to Lydia Curtis. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. We are the page with a protest sign with green letters that say on the ground. We're also on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW on the ground. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Funkadelic, One Nation Under a Groove, Navasha Dea, It's Still About Freedom, and Santa Esmeralda, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. We have launched a petition campaign at change.org to urge the D.C. Council to hold a public hearing about the actions of the Metropolitan Police Department during this year's illegal siege and takeover of the Venezuela Embassy. We're asking all of our listeners, especially those based in D.C., to go to change.org and search for and sign the petition titled, Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuela Embassy. 
that's change.org, and search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuelan Embassy. If you care about freedom of speech and the ability for us to raise our voices, to peaceably assemble and not be attacked by vicious right-wing thugs, especially from other countries, if you care about the right for people to be able to protest, not only here in D.C., people here in D.C., but for people coming from all over around the world or around the country to the nation's capital to be able to come and protest and do so in a safe space and be protected by those who are paid to protect and serve. Please go to change.org and sign the petition, hold public hearings on MPD actions at the Venezuelan Embassy. Thank you. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.